0: as a Georgia grand jury meets, Donald Trump goes on the attack. The lead starts right now. A moment of truth in Fulton County, Georgia, a grand jury bust in as prosecutors lay out their evidence that Donald Trump tried to steal the state's electoral votes. Witness testimony moved up from to tomorrow, up from tomorrow to today. The Trump attacks on a key witness and text messages that directly link the former president's legal team to a voting system breach and Hawaii's wildfire aftermath, with the death toll close to 100, we're now hearing about government failures to protect the people of Maui. The reported failed water hydrants in the height of the firefight. Warning sirens that did not go off, plus a new lawsuit claiming that live power lines were not cut off, and that might have sparked the first flames. Then, the raid on a small Kansas newspaper raising questions about where press freedom is going in the United States in this era. The editor, Target in the raid, joins me this hour. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with our law and justice lead. Right now, this second, a Georgia grand jury is deciding whether Donald Trump should be indicted for trying to steal the election in that state, and it appears things are moving faster than anticipated. It was expected to take at least two days for Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis to present her evidence, but a number of key witnesses who had been told to show up tomorrow and testify have now been called in to testify today. Those witnesses include former Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, a conservative Republican and also a CNN contributor, CNN Learning, that Lieutenant Governor Duncan just walked into the grand jury room to testify. Forebodingly, perhaps, Trump posted on social media earlier today, quote, I am reading reports that failed Lieutenant Governor of Georgia Jeff Duncan, he misspelled Jeff, will be testifying before the Fulton County grand jury. He shouldn't, unquote. Now, we could learn about possible charges literally any moment after all of that testimony wraps. CNN's Sarah Murray Starts us off today from Fulton County, Georgia, with a closer look at what these witnesses are likely telling the grand jurors behind closed doors.
1: An Atlanta-area grand jury arriving today to hear the case on Donald Trump and his allies' efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. We've been working for two and a half years. We're ready to go. Fulton County District Attorney Fani Willis expected to seek charges against more than a dozen individuals. Security already ramped up around the local courthouse as the former president faces down a likely fourth indictment.
2: Is there any chance you take a plea deal in Georgia? We did nothing wrong. We don't ever take yes, a sir. plea deal. Sir. Yes, sir. We don't take plea deals.
1: It's a wise guy question. Trump lashing out at former Georgia Lieutenant Governor and CNN contributor Jeff Duncan, a Republican who's set to testify before the grand jury today.
3: I'm just going to answer the questions as presented to me, much like I did in the special grand jury. Uh,
4: whatever the questions are, to the best of my ability, I'm going to answer the questions.
1: Duncan declining to say whether he felt intimidated after Trump posted today, I am reading reports that failed former Lieutenant Governor of Georgia Jeff Duncan will be testifying before the Fulton County grand jury. He shouldn't, followed by a series of insults aimed at Duncan.
4: Witness tampering pretty blatantly. Uh, he's trying to tell, uh, send a message to Duncan to withhold or whatever, Uh, Trump is just, he just doesn't seem to be able to help himself.
1: This week's grand jury presentation, the culmination of a sprawling two-and-a-half-year criminal investigation, covering Trump's call to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger.
4: I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more than we have, because we won the state.
1: To the fake electors who convened to cast illegitimate votes for Trump. The harassment of election workers and a voting systems breach in rural Coffee County. Hello. Witnesses including former Democratic State Representative B Wynn and former State Senator Jen Jordan Testifying before the grand jury today about conspiracy-ridden presentations, Trump's legal team gave before state lawmakers in December 2020.
5: They had all of their witnesses that purportedly, you know, were telling the state legislators that that they could basically choose the electors um, and could throw out the votes of um, millions and millions of Georgians. And I was sitting there. I thought this 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 can't be real.
1: While Gabriel Sterling, an official from the Georgia Secretary of State's office, was also spotted at the courthouse. He was a leading voice in rebutting Trump's election lies in real time back in 2020.
2: So there hasn't
6: been direct evidence of a conspiracy. There's no evidence of, a, of this, some cabal over the top of this trying to switch the elections out.
1: Now, Jake, we are on high alert for any potential indictments that could be announced today. As you pointed out, the grand jury is moving much more swiftly than expected. The former Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan was supposed to testify yesterday. He's already in the courthouse today. George Cheedy, an independent journalist, was also supposed to testify tomorrow. He is in the courthouse today. So, again, things seem to be moving more swiftly than the district attorney's team initially planned. And we are on the watch for any potential indictments.
0: All right. Sarah Murray in Atlanta, Fulton County. Thanks so much. Turning now to a different investigation of Donald Trump and a CNN exclusive. Today, a group of former Republican legal officials endorsed the speedy trial date proposed by special counsel Jack Smith in his case against Donald Trump over efforts to overturn the 2020 election nationwide. CNN's Jamie Gangel is here with me. Jamie, what are the arguments these Republicans are making?
7: So this is the brief, and there are almost 12 legal luminaries, all Republicans. And what they're saying is that it's not only in Donald Trump's interest and his right, as we know, to have a speedy trial, but that it's also in the American public's interest because of the nature of what happened on January 6th. Here's part of what the brief says. This is really pushing back on Trump's uh, team and Trump himself trying to delay the trial. Quote, the former president is entitled to this speedy trial as a matter of law. He is not entitled to an unjust delay in his trial to serve his purely personal and political interests in the delay of the trial. Bottom line, Jake, they say the facts of the trial are straightforward, the time it would take. Uh, But that the stakes could not be higher, that it is democracy, the future of the country, and again, that the American public has the right to have a prompt, expeditious, speedy trial.
0: All right, Jamie Gingell, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's discuss all of this with former federal prosecutor and CNN senior legal analyst, Ellie Honig. Ellie, how much do you think the judge will take this brief that Jamie just told us about into consideration? How realistic is the start date?
8: Well, Jake, it's a powerful statement by a group of deeply respected former officials. But I think Judge Chutkin has made clear that she intends to decide this case without regard to whatever anyone on the outside saying her goal here is to decide this case without regard to politics or outside influence. With respect to how realistic a January 2nd trial date is, I think Judge Chutkin has made clear that she is going to schedule this trial for before the November 2024 election. But January 2nd is just five months after this indictment was returned. That would be remarkably fast to hold the trial of this level of breadth and complexity. And yes, the group that Jamie's talking about is correct that the American public has a right to a speedy trial. But Donald Trump also has a Sixth Amendment right to fully prepare his defense. I don't think January 2nd is enough time to do that. So I look for Judge Chuck to find some sort of midground here.
0: So let's say she does push the start date further back. Um, she'll be running into the hush money trial in New York, which is set to start at the end of March. Um, do you think prosecutors in New York might move their case, uh, to allow Jack Smith to bring his first? I mean, Alvin Bragg's case is considered the, the least credible
8: and the least important of them all. I think it's fair to say among legal experts. Well, I certainly agree with that, and I think there's a game of dominoes that will sort of happen here. And yes, Alvin Bragg has made a point over the last several weeks of hinting, maybe a bit more than that in his public interviews, that he would be willing to consider moving off that date. Now, it's not solely up to the prosecutor. If he did want to move, he would have to then go to his state judge here in New York and ask to move that trial. But I do think that if Judge Chutkin and Jack Smith's team needed that time frame to try their case I think there's a compelling argument to go into the Manhattan court on the hush money case and say, hey, let's put this one off so they can do the January 6th trial.
0: Let me ask you about that social media post uh, Donald Trump posted about Lieutenant Governor uh, Jeff Duncan, in which he said that he was reading reports uh, that Duncan was going to testify before the grand jury. And Trump writes, quote, he shouldn't, unquote. Is that witness intimidation? Is that witness tampering, do you
8: think? Absolutely. Yes. In my view, I don't see any gray area here. If you look at the Georgia law on witness intimidation, witness tampering, it says any attempt to influence or intimidate someone in order to try to influence their testimony or convince them not to testify. This to me is right down the middle. And by the way, Jeff Duncan, of course, is a colleague and friend of ours here at CNN. Even if Jeff is unintimidated, he will, I'm sure, go in there. I'm sure he's doing it right now, answering those questions straight up. The question is, what is the intent by the actor, by Donald Trump in this case. If Donald Trump had texted that exact same message to Jeff Duncan, there would be no question. And the fact that he put it out on Truth Social to me makes no difference. I think this is straight up witness tampering, witness intimidation.
0: Would, is it possible Trump might see some sort of punishment for it?
8: If I'm at the prosecutor's office right now, I'm thinking hard about, do we need to add this into the indictment? It doesn't take long to put in front of a grand jury. You read them, the Truth Social, and and you say, look, it's up to you to decide the intent here.
0: You've previously talked on our show about how potentially racketeering charges, uh, which Trump and his allies might face in Georgia, racketeering charges carry a mandatory prison sentence of at least five years. D- do you think that those charges are on the table, do you think?
8: Absolutely. This is, would be a game changer for the exact reason you say. First of all, Jacob, all the charges that have been lodged against Donald Trump, none of them carry a mandatory minimum racketeering would. And the theory behind racketeering is you have a group of organized individuals who work together to commit a series of crimes. And I think if you break this down in Georgia to the false elector scheme, to the false testimony we just saw clips of Rudy Giuliani giving, to the other false statements and pressure tactics Donald Trump exerted against Brad Raffensperger and other Georgia officials, I think there is a case to be made that the racketeering laws do fit this quite nicely.
0: Hmm. Ellie Honig, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Jake. All right. Mark Short joins me now. He was chief of staff to former. Former Vice President Mike Pence, who is a current presidential uh, candidate. Thanks so much for being here, Mark. So um, Donald Trump expects he's going to be indicted for a fourth time uh, since leaving office this week, yet he continues to dominate all the polling out there, state by state and national polling among Republican uh, voters. Um, do you think that a fourth
9: indictment uh, might
0: have a different impact than the previous
9: three? I don't know, Jake. I think there's no doubt that the previous three actually probably rallied Republican voters to his defense. I don't think they were neutral. I think they're actually beneficial to him politically. And I that's probably because the very first one brought in New York was probably the most specious and one that I think a lot of Republicans felt was the most political. But, you know, as we move on into this, I don't think anybody knows how it's going to play out as to whether or not it continues to have the same benefit to Trump politically, because there is a difference between indictments and actually sitting there in a courtroom in a trial and how that impacts voters. So,
0: former Vice President Pence is still facing allegations; they're false from Trump and other Republicans that he had the ability constitutionally to overturn the election uh, results. Um, Your team uh, came came out uh, during the January sixth hearing. Your team, uh, the Vice President's office, was communicating with the Senate parliamentarian um, about um, what to do with these fake electors. Here's a here's a text message from uh, the office of the Vice President. Uh, it's an email, rather. I'm sorry. How are you? I hope you are doing well. Do you have any a spreadsheet you can share for all of the um, all of us that received? This is about um, these uh, these fake electors. Um, what did the parliament? What guidance did the parliamentarian offer? Because I know she sent you guys. She sent the vice president's office a, a fake elector slates from five or six states.
9: Well, uh, the parliamentarian met with the vice president on the day of January 3rd, because the vice president was up in the Senate uh, swearing in the new members of Congress. And we met with the parliamentarian that afternoon. And she was very helpful because she actually gave context to say, you know, we actually get people sending in fake slates every four years. Oh, it happens every t- all the time. And they're meaningless. They're meaningless. And okay. so it was important for her to stipulate that unless they're certified by the state, it doesn't really matter. In eighteen seventy-six there was a very contentious election, which then the Electoral Count Act followed to set forth the criteria for certifying state electors. And knowing that none of them had been certified by the state, and in fact the Republican legislatures in many of those contested states had said, We've already certified ours. We're not looking at this again. There was there was no recourse for somebody who wanted to present a false or a separate slate of electors.
0: Yeah, no, it's interesting. And also, um, we know that from these emails uh, that um, the parliamentarian emailed back with a spreadsheet detailing what they call deficiencies of the fake electoral submissions. And Pence, when he made his uh, presentation on on the floor of the Senate as presiding officer, as the president of the Senate, he said something. Normally, uh, vice presidents say the same thing pretty much every four years. He said something different. I'm not sure if we have that soundbite, but I'd like to run in if we do.
4: Are there any objections to counting the certificate of vote of the state of Alabama that the teller has verified appears to be regular, form and authentic? Hearing none. This certificate from Alaska, the parliamentarians advise me, is the only certificate of vote from that state that purports to be a return from the state, and that has annexed to it a certificate from an authority of the state purporting to appoint and ascertain electors.
0: The language he was using there was much more detailed
9: and much more precise about what the parliamentarian was telling him. So the parliamentarian had provided our office with traditional scripts, and our general counsel, Greg Jacob, and our head of legislative affairs, Chris Hodgson, worked with them to say, can we alter it in these ways? And there are some ways allowed, some ways not. But it was very carefully articulated because the vice president warned the American people who are watching to understand there's only been one slate that had been certified, and that is what I'm authenticating. Because we knew there would be different stories of saying, well, what about this alternate slate? And they're, again, they're meaningless unless they've been certified by the state. Anybody can present them, but it doesn't matter.
0: Right. And the, and the scheme, uh, allegedly, is that Trump and John Eastman and the others who were coming up with these fake sle- uh, slates of electors from all over the country, in Michigan they're being prosecuted now, um, they wanted the vice president to act as if, oh, I don't know which one of these
9: slates is real. I'm going to have to send it back to the state, right? Well, in part, I think it's important to remember that really the request was simply for the vice president to reject them. And only in the last couple of days leading up to January 6th was it really pushed upon the vice president's team to say, perhaps you can delay because people felt that sounded better. But Jake, it's important to understand it wouldn't have had a material difference. It was the same purpose because the idea was that statutorily Congress had to determine the next president. So if you delayed it, The idea really was, well, then this gets pushed to the House of Representatives. And the notion is, in the House of Representatives, if you ever get to that point, each state delegation gets one vote. And there were 26 states that had a Republican delegation and 24 that had a Democrat delegation. So even though it sounds like, oh, we'll just buy us more time, let them rethink this, none of the states were going to rethink it. They'd already certified but separately, the real intention was if we force a delay, then this kicks a vote into the House of Representatives in an attempt to overturn the result.
0: It's just it's, it's for people to understand how this wasn't just like random, organic, weird happenings. There was this conspiracy and the, the fake electors that were being filed that a bunch of them are being prosecuted in Michigan right now. This was part of what you and your staff had to deal with. And and were trying to figure out ways to stave off
9: this illegal scheme. Well, I can assure you there were also random weird happenings. Sure, t- that too. T- at the same That time. too. But, uh, but yeah, I think that uh, um, the, the general counsel the vice president care- carefully uh, put together that language with the vice president to try and educate the American people. There's only one slate of certified electors here, and that's what I'm moving forward with. Mark Short, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Good to see you thanks, again. Jake.
0: Coming up next, the failures that may have sparked the flames in Hawaii and contributed to the deadliest U.S. wildfire in more than 100 years and coordinated smash and grabs, an unintended consequence when police and city leaders try to crack down on the crimes. Plus, eyes on the enemy, CNN's exclusive look at technology helping on Ukraine's front lines. In our national lead, more members of the Hawaii National Guard were activated today, responding to the unspeakable devastation from the Hawaii wildfires, which has Claimed at least 96 lives, and scores remain unaccounted for. Cadaver dogs have only searched 3% of the fire zone as of Saturday night. CNN's Gloria Pasmino is on Maui alongside devastated residents. As one nagging question persists, could any of this have been prevented?
10: I'm completely heartbroken over this.
11: Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who has strong family ties to Hawaii, echoing a sentiment shared by many.
2: Hope is really the most important thing that we need and to be sensitive to those who have lost everything.
11: But hope is a high bar for many fire survivors, especially those with missing loved ones. Watching as rescue and recovery teams sift through the ashes while remnants of the fires still burn. Every day going back to help
12: clean up and help put spot fires out or it, it just, it still seems like a nightmare that we're trying to wake up from.
11: Also, rumors that the tragedy is becoming a morbid spectacle.
5: I heard there was a snorkeling boat looking at Lahaina Town. Give them respect. People died here. Oh,
2: no.
11: Oh Questions no, are growing oh no. over the outdoor warning sirens used for hurricanes and tsunamis, which were left silent as wildfires swept through. The attorney general has launched a review of what happened with those sirens and some of the other actions that were taken. Some survivors were sent text to phones without service. In the chaos of fleeing, Trees were falling and branches were starting on fire, power lines were
5: falling down.
11: Those power lines, the focus of a new class action suit, filed against Hawaiian Electric, claiming the company failed to cut power as toppled energized lines ignited wildfires. Hawaiian Electric says it will cooperate with the review into exactly what happened. Now, Jake, we have been here in this area of Maui trying to speak to people about what happened. And I just want to give you an idea of the devastation. You can see this home behind me completely burned to the ground. The only thing left standing is that chimney, the cars, everything is gone. And I've spoken to the owner of this property just a few minutes ago. She walked up, she was surveying the damage and she told me she is still in survivor mode. It still just has not been able to process the emotions of what's happened here. Another neighbor told me that it was the trees that brought down those power lines. And as you know, uh, that uh, lawsuit has now been filed. They say it. As long as soon as the tree brought down the power lines, there was a spark, and it was only just a matter of hours before entire homes were up in flames. Jake?
0: Gloria Pesmino on the island of Maui. Thank you so much. And you can help Hawaii wildfire victims. Head to CNN.com slash impact, CNN.com slash impact, for a list of vetted resources. You can also, if you want, text the word Hawaii to the number 70. Coming up next, was it retribution for investigative reporting? The police raid on a small town newspaper raising questions about the status of freedom of the press. Topping our worldly today, a quote, act of piracy on the Black Sea, according to the government of Ukraine. A Russian battleship fired warning shots at an empty Turkish cargo ship on Sunday and then sent a helicopter full of Russian servicemen to the Turkish vessel and questioned the Turkish captain for an hour. Russia claims that the ship did not respond to an inspection request. While on land, Russian shelling hit the southern region of Kherson, buildings and families torn apart. A mom and dad, their 12-year-old boy, and a just over three-week-old baby girl who lived in this house did not survive. In response, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has vowed, quote, completely fair retaliation against Russia. Meanwhile, the U.S. just announced a new $200 million round of military aid for Ukraine, which includes more artillery, air defense munitions, and mine clearing equipment. That last piece is especially vital, as Ukraine's defense minister declares Ukraine is now the most heavily mined country in the world. CNN's Nick Payton Walsh got exclusive access to a team that finds those deadly explosives on the front lines. fires still
13: smoulder at dusk, moving to the very front of Ukraine's counter-offensive near Robotinyi. A few hours ago, there was intense bombardment around this area, and now the sun is setting, there's the occasional uh, round being fired, but most of it seems to be towards Russian positions. We're here to learn of a new tactic that may help Ukraine overcome one of the hardest obstacles here, minefields. Shell fire is a constant overhead. The drone unit used daylight to help direct artillery fire. You will see the incoming shortly? Uh, OK, so they're using this to correct the next shell that's fired. And no, they must keep hidden... There's still the basic problem that it's trench warfare and minefields, and that by definition makes the going slow. But as the sky darkens and the air cools here, an advantage has emerged. One of their drones is equipped with a thermal camera. And they've noticed out in the wide cratered fields, about four kilometres away where the Russians hide, something new. Some of these white dots are Russian landmines. They retain the heat of the summer sun as the earth around them cools. The contrast is greatest at dusk or dawn, experts say, so they seem to glow. The unit told us they use special charges to blow up the mines. It's not a precise science, but a huge help in seeing an invisible enemy.
12: Encircled
13: by mines, don't try to tell them their counter offensive could be faster.
1: You know. Are a lot.
13: Every to the There's little time to reflect though.
7: Guys, run, run, run. run. Come, go, go, go. As a
13: Russian helicopter is spotted coming right at them, we take cover for it to pass. This is the kind of threat they endure every day when just one piece of information can send them running for cover. And then we leave. after we left we're told that trench network came under heavy russian attack which they repelled but the grind is constant and respite rare and any advantage no matter how small urgently welcome jake it's important to remember when you look at that use of essentially relatively low technology to try and confront an extraordinary enemy there that volume of landmines that we often at times i think imagine the western equipment given to the ukrainian military generously at times has sort of been enough has kind of answered the question of do they have the tools they need to do the job here they are still up against the russian military that have quite a lot of sophisticated equipment on their sides. They certainly feel it there on those front lines. And day by day, they are doing anything they possibly can to inch forwards. But you saw there in those thermal images just how many landmines there are in one small field. That's what they're up against. That is what is taking the limbs of their colleagues and friends every day. And that is what they're now using, those heat cameras, to try and find a way around. Ingenuity every day, but still a constant grind,
0: Jake. More great reporting from Nick Peyton Walsh in Dnipro, Ukraine. Thank you so much. Now, coming up next, the vi- video that CNN just obtained of a controversial, outrageous police raid on a small Kansas newspaper. This just in from Fulton County, Georgia. The judge presiding over court today says he is prepared to keep court open past 5 p.m. tonight. As a grand jury there hears evidence about Trump's efforts to overturn the election results in that state, perhaps illegally. I want to bring in CNN's Sarah Murray, who's outside the courthouse, and former federal prosecutor Prosecutor Ellie Honig. Sarah, walk us through what's happening inside uh, that building right now. How big a deal is it that that the judge might keep uh, the courtroom open past 5 p.m.?
1: Well, we don't know exactly what this means. Our colleagues, Zach and Maxime, are inside. They're inside the courtroom where Judge Robert McBurney, who's the presiding judge this week, told reporters he's prepared to keep the courthouse, the courtroom, open past 5 p.m. Now, that could mean that the grand jury that's hearing this Trump case is just going to take a longer than 5 p.m. to continue hearing from the witnesses we know have been going in front of them today. You know, we know. Former Georgia Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan showed up just a little while ago. Independent journalist George Cheezy showed up just a little while ago. They were supposed to testify tomorrow. Their appearances got moved up. So maybe it's about trying to wrap up some witness testimony today. The other option, of course, is that the grand jury is trying to finish this whole thing today, that it's possible that they could hand up indictments. So we're waiting to see, Jake.
0: And Ellie, is this something that happens often on days when prosecutors are presenting to grand juries?
8: No, Jake, it's pretty unusual for this to happen, because usually if you have a grand jury that's scheduled to go home at, say, five o'clock, they will leave at five o'clock because they have child care responsibilities and other things. So the fact that they're being kept that if they are, in fact, kept after that, that tells me that it's something unusual is happening. Now, the grand jury is there to serve the court. And so if they're needed to stay after, they'll be told that and they'll make it work. But this is not business as usual. This is unusual, but it's also not entirely unheard of.
0: All right, Ellie Honig and Sarah Murray, thanks uh, to both of you for that update. In our national lead, a raid on a Kansas, Kansas newspaper has sparked concerns about police violating the First Amendment. Law enforcement officials say they searched the home and offices of one of the newspaper's owners after finding evidence, they say, of a crime committed. But the owner says no crime was committed, the search was illegal, he says, and an attack on the free press. What began at a coffee shop in a small town in Kansas is now a national outrage. It's a scene one might expect in an authoritarian country, not in the heartland of a nation where freedom of the press is a hallmark of its liberty. On Friday in Marion, Kansas, police raided the Marion County record, Circulation 4000. They seized computers, cell phones, and other materials, including the newspaper's file server, according to publisher and co-owner Eric Meyer. Eric Meyer's home, and the home of the paper's co-owner, his 98-year-old mother Joan, was also raided and her computer and other belongings were seized. Eric says the stress, shock, and grief contributed to his mother's death on Saturday. Eric Meyer believes the raid was retribution for a story he published about being kicked out of a public event for a Republican member of Congress hosted by local business owner Carrie Newell. Carrie Newell says she did so because she didn't trust the paper's reporting. Meyer claims after he and his reporter Phyllis Zorn were kicked out, Zorn got a tip about Carrie Newell, alleging driving without a valid license after a DUI in 2008. They did not publish the story, but their offices were raided anyway, alarming freedom of the press advocates, including Emily Bradbury of the Kansas Press Association.
5: It is really hard to believe that this is not a retaliatory measure for something.
0: Carrie Newell says the paper unlawfully used her credentials to get private information about her. The reporter, Zorn, says the information came from a source, and when she verified its authenticity, she did so under her own name. The Marion Police Department, with help from the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, executed the search warrant alleging violations of identity theft of Newell and unlawful acts concerning computers. A warrant was signed by a county judge. Such raids are normally a very rare occurrence in the U.S. given free press protection spelled out in the Bill of Rights and the Privacy Protection Act of 1980, which protects journalists from search and seizures, requiring a subpoena.
5: The proper protocol would have been to use subpoena power to get any information that they were looking for. We have not seen a subpoena. There was never a subpoena filed for the information, any sort of information that they were looking for to our knowledge. In
0: this case, the Marion County Police Chief Gideon Cody says there are exceptions, such as, quote, when there is a reason to believe the journalist is taking part in underlying wrongdoing, unquote. The Marion County record denies any wrongdoing.
12: It's very difficult to ascertain whether or not this is violative of the law, the Privacy Protection Act, or whether the circumstances fall into one of the very, very limited
8: exceptions.
0: Dozens of news organizations across the country, including CNN, are condemning the raid. The Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press sent a letter to Police Chief Cody saying, "...newsroom searches and seizures are among the most intrusive actions." law enforcement can take with respect to the free press and the most potentially suppressive of free speech by the press and the public. The chief of police, Chief Cody, said in a statement to CNN, quote, I believe when the rest of the story is available to the public, the judicial system that is being questioned will be vindicated, unquote. I guess we shall see. Coming up, coordinated crime rings and an unintended consequence when big cities try to crack down. Stay with us. Turning to Los Angeles, where police say a coordinated, quote, mob of criminals ransacked a mall in broad daylight Saturday and stole more than $300,000 worth of stuff. The shoplifters reportedly sprayed guards with bear spray, then more than 30 suspects scattered to different cars and fled. CNN's Josh Campbell's in Los Angeles. And Josh, th- this happens to be the second such incident in just five days in the Los Angeles area. This kind of crime is happening in San Francisco, here in D.C. It's forced businesses, business owners, to shut their doors for good in some cases. How is L.A. dealing with these uh, very intense and, and strategic smash and grabs?
3: Yeah, Jake, you know, we're hearing expressions of anger, of frustration, of fear. I mean, these were people who were going about their day at a shopping mall on a Saturday afternoon when this uh, flash mob of criminals, over 30 people, started ransacking this store. It was terrorizing to people who were then fleeing, obviously, the people that were working at this business. And as you mentioned, we saw just a similar incident just days before, uh, nearby Glendale, California, where another group uh, had hit a mall and had stolen upwards of $300,000 worth of merchandise there as well. see that video there on your screen. Now, our colleagues at CNN Affiliate KCAL caught up with residents of the Valley area right after this latest incident. Here's some of their reaction.
14: This is my neighborhood. I have neighborhood pride no matter how bad it gets, but this is the second time. This is not the first time.
9: It's just brazen. Nobody's afraid of the repercussions.
10: Police are, are handcuffed themselves. They can't do what they're supposed to do. They're not, criminals aren't being prosecuted to the full extent of the law.
5: I won't go near this mall or any mall. I do all my shopping online. It's just, it's too dangerous.
3: And that last point there, Jake, is so key because it's not just people at the mall who are terrorized, but entire communities are affected when businesses start to close because of crime, particularly this affects lower income Americans because of the place where they shop for their groceries or other retail items closes due to crime. It costs money to travel across town uh, to buy what they need. These are certainly not victimless crimes, Jake.
0: Not at all. Uh, Josh, Los Angeles has a no bail policy, which just went back into effect this summer. Explain what that is and how it might be contributing to the rise in crime if you, if you think that there could be a, a direct uh, correlation.
3: That's right. Current bail policies uh, indicate that for certain crimes, nonviolent crimes, uh, there is not bail in most circumstances. So if you get arrested, you're out uh, on the street without having to pay bail. Now, criminal justice advocates say that the reason is because bail policy, in their view, disproportionately affects people who are lower income. If you're wealthy and you are arrested, you can pay money, you're out and about. If you don't have the funds, you sit in jail. Now the issue there is the other extreme from no bail or for, from high bail is no bail, and we're hearing certain prosecutors say, look, there has to be a middle ground here, including uh, the uh, district attorney up in Yolo County, who was on CNN recently. He's the former head of the District Attorneys Association here in California. He has an idea for how to find that common ground. Have a listen.
10: There's lots of things that we could do differently. And one of them is simply have a risk assessment on every single individual when they're arrested before you make the decision to release or not. And that's the problem with zero bail is it's just an automatic release.
3: So in his view, you look at individual assessments. What's someone's propensity for perhaps uh, uh, offending again? The recidivism rate, uh, right now, the policies are for certain offenses, you are out. Uh, We'll see if that idea uh, gains any traction here in Los Angeles, Jake.
0: All right, Josh Campbell in Los Angeles. Thank you so much. We're back with the big news this afternoon. A Fulton County judge preparing to keep that courtroom open Late in the evening, if the grand jury wants to, the grand jury is meeting and they're hearing from witnesses in that state's 2020 election fraud case. We're going to go live to the courtroom next. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, a quote, walk of shame. That is how one victim is describing the emotional court appearance of six Mississippi officers who called themselves the Goon Squad and are accused of torturing two black men. Plus, a mile per minute, that's how fast the fires in Hawaii were moving as they destroyed everything in their path. Right now, the death toll in Hawaii stands at 96, but that is expected to rise as officials try to firm up the number of people missing and unaccounted for. Leading this hour, the Fulton County, Georgia courthouse would normally be closing in just a few minutes, but tonight a judge says he is willing to keep his courtroom open. This as a grand jury is continuing to hear evidence about efforts to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia. That testimony has been moving faster than expected today. Sources say that Donald Trump's team is preparing for a potential indictment to be delivered imminently. Let's get straight to CNN's Paula Reed, who is outside the courthouse in Fulton County, Georgia, for us. And Paula, there has been a lot of movement there in the last few hours. Tell us what's happening right now.
5: Well, Jake, witnesses who are scheduled to come in tomorrow have been called in early because things are moving so quickly. And right now, we know that former Republican Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan is inside the courthouse. Another witness, George Chidi, an independent journalist who was also scheduled to come tomorrow, was also called in uh, this afternoon. And then earlier today, the grand jury heard from two former Georgia lawmakers. They heard uh, from these both of these women. They're both state senators both Democrats they both went in expected to testify about a presentation uh, that they received from former Trump lawyer Rudy Giuliani that was laden with conspiracy theories these are all the witnesses that the district attorney Fonnie Willis was expected to call to help present her case laying out this alleged conspiracy to overturn the election here in Georgia Now, Jake, we had anticipated this would take two days and at this point it's unclear if they're going to be able to move forward with possible indictments today or if they'll have to continue tomorrow. Like you said, the courthouse closes at 5. We know they're still in there, so we're watching and waiting.
0: Yep, it's after 5 right now. Paula, Paula, walk us through what happens if the grand jury does decide to indict Donald Trump uh, and or any of his allies.
5: So we expect that the indictments uh, will be for over a dozen people. Uh, The former president's lawyers have said that they do expect he will be among those indicted. Uh, We would expect that the district attorney uh, would seek an indictment from this grand jury. Then we would expect it would go to the clerk's office, where we will most likely uh, get our copy. And then it will be uh, made public, and we'll be able to read about the charges. But one of the things that's really unclear here, Jake, is when the former president would appear for his initial appearance uh, and a potential arraignment. In his federal cases, that happened pretty quickly. But down in Georgia, sources telling CNN that the former president's team expects it may take a little bit longer to have his first appearance down in Georgia if he is indicted.
0: All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. As those witnesses continue to testify before the grand jury in Atlanta, Donald Trump is expecting he could be indicted at any moment. CNN's Elena Treen joins us now. Elena, uh, how is Trump's team preparing for this latest indictment?
1: Well, Jake, they have a playbook now. They've uh, had to respond to three previous indictments and they're planning to use the same playbook with this potential indictment. They are lining up surrogates and allies, having them ready to respond to potential charges if they are filed. They've also um, spoken to conservative media and had them uh, write pre-written statements. And so they're preparing a response ahead of time for when or if um, an indictment in Georgia does come. Now, I'm also told um, that Donald Trump's team does expect that a potential um, arraignment, if he is indicted, uh, would be in person, that he would have to show up in person uh, in Georgia and appear before the court. Of course, we that's an early guess from uh, his team, from what they tell me, but that is what they're anticipating at this time, Jake.
0: All right, Elena Treen, thanks so much. I want to bring in Tom Dupree now. He served as the principal deputy assistant attorney general under President George uh, W. Bush. So, Tom, we just heard Trump's team is expecting an indictment uh, imminently. Um, I know this is all speculation, but informed speculation. What kind of charges are you expecting?
14: I think these are going to be broad charges. For one thing, my strong suspicion is that Fonnie Willis is going to indict multiple defendants, far more than the single defendant indictment that Jack Smith prepared. The other claim she might bring, which I'm keeping an eye on, is a RICO charge. Explain to people what that is. Sure. That's usually for gangsters. Exactly. Normally, RICO, it's it's both a federal and a state statute. But what it basically does is it allows prosecutors to indict large conspiracies, conspiracies to achieve criminal activity. It's typically rolled out in the context of mobsters or organized crime figures but it can be applied to a variety of situations. And my strong hunch is that they are looking very seriously at bringing a RICO-type complaint against President Trump and his advisors for a conspiracy involving the election.
0: So let's talk about what we do know about what happened in Georgia. We know Donald Trump uh, leaned on the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, to find the correct number of votes to flip it. We know that the prosecutor uh, has evidence tying the Trump team, legal team, to a, uh, a breach of the election uh, machines uh, in, a, in a Republican county. Uh, we know that there was a slate of fake electors uh, that was submitted and not accepted. We know that Rudy Giuliani went down there and met with legislators to talk about um, all these wild and outlandish and disproved claims about the election and telling them uh, that they should therefore flip the election uh, to Donald Trump. Is that... A conspiracy to commit a crime?
14: Well, it sure could be. What you've articulated is a bunch of what lawyers would call predicate acts. In other words, the discrete criminal acts that you would use to tie together a larger criminal conspiracy. And certainly, Fannie Willis has a whole bunch of different things she could look at. There were the items you mentioned, the call to Brad Raffensperger, there was the voting machine alleged tampering, there's a slate of false electors. The other thing that they could look at is whether there was more recent conduct by President Trump or his advisers to either tamper with witnesses or otherwise obstruct justice. That would be something that was a little different in time, separated in time from the 2020 election, but nonetheless could form a part of the charges she's about to bring.
0: Well, you talk about tampering with witnesses. We know uh, our CNN colleague and former uh, lieutenant governor, uh, Jeff Duncan, who is a witness and is testifying today. Donald Trump posted something on his social media site uh, saying he shouldn't
14: testify um, is that witness tampering? Well, a, a prosecutor can make a strong case that that's witness tampering. Um, I mean, if you have someone who you either know or reasonably expect is testifying either before the grand jury or before a trial and you threaten or cajole or attempt to obstruct that testimony, sure, a prosecutor could make out a case for witness tampering. That seems to me at least maybe a little too recent in time to form a basis for this indictment that presumably is forthcoming. But it wouldn't surprise me if Fannie Willis has found other examples where people on the Trump team used what she believes to be improper proper pressure to coerce witnesses, either not to testify or to give different testimony.
0: Uh, let's uh, bring back uh, CNN's Paula Reed, who's outside the Fulton County Courthouse. Paul, uh, there is a key difference in this case and the federal election case having to do with Trump trying to overturn the results yeah. of the election. That's because in Georgia, Trump cannot pardon himself, even if he is uh, elected president next November.
5: That's right, Jake. This is one of the reasons that the former president's legal team has been most concerned uh, about Georgia. Not only the evidence uh, that they know, uh, many of us are familiar with, like that call with the secretary of state, many of the other key pieces of evidence that Fonnie Willis has gathered. But it's the fact that once this case is brought, if he is indicted, he can't make it go away. If he is reelected uh, to the White House, he can, most people agree, most legal experts agree, that he would likely be able to have his handpicked attorney general uh, fire the special counsel. I'm sure there'd be legal challenges to that. He also, of course, has his pardon power, uh, likely for himself uh, and certainly for others. But the state of Georgia, that is beyond the reach of even the president of the United States, and there's no mechanism for him to make this case go away, even if he is reelected. So what happens,
0: Tom? What happens if Donald Trump, I mean, let's presume that the verdict doesn't come in until after November 2024. And let's presume for the sake of this exercise that he wins, which could happen, uh, both the nomination and the presidency. What happens if a, the Georgia a jury in Georgia says he's guilty of X, Y, Z, and he has Enrico statutes? It's a five-year minimum sentence, right? I mean, the president of the United States goes to prison?
14: Well, I, I, I think there are a few hurdles they would have to get over to make that happen. I guess the first thing is, I think in that scenario, President Trump and his lawyers would basically say to the judge, you need to exercise discretion and not sentence him to jail time. In other words, he's the duly elected new president of the United States, and you should either suspend the sentence, impose a fine, defer the sentence, allow him to serve as president. If that fails, I think the second argument the Trump team would make, at least I would make if I were in their shoes, is to say that it infringes on his constitutional duty to execute the laws of the United States, so that it would be unconstitutional to force an incumbent president of the United States to serve jail time on a state charge. We're a long way away from that point. Those arguments have never succeeded. They've never been needed to be presented before in our nation's history. But I think that's the sort of argument that you would see if the scenario played out as you articulated.
0: And also, we should just note: if if such a thing and a verdict happened before the presidential election, he could run for president from prison. It has happened before Eugene Debs' (laughs) In like the, the, in the 20s or something, was, was, was a presidential candidate who had been put in prison for violating the Sedition Act, of all things.
14: It, it, it absolutely right. Look, you, you do have to dig pretty far back in our nation's history to find something even remotely analogous. And I think it's a fair bet to say that our founders probably didn't envision the scenario that we find ourselves in today.
0: Paula, we've seen Donald Trump attacking the Fulton, Fulton County District Attorney, Fanny Willis, on his Truth Social uh, page, even as she is inside that building right now, uh, possibly preparing uh an indictment against him.
5: That's right. This is nothing new. He has repeatedly attacked uh Fonny Willis, calling her a Marxist, uh, a racist. Today, uh pointing out some of the crime issues in the city of Atlanta, suggesting that she should be focusing on that instead of this indictment, similar to the attacks that he launched against the Manhattan district attorney, who also indicted him in a separate case. But, Jake, lawyers uh, who have worked for the former president have have made the argument to me that there are legitimate questions about whether uh, elected district attorneys, in this case a Democratic prosecutor, should be able to file charges against a former president of the United States or if that's something that should be reserved for the Justice Department and for special counsel. But the former president not making that nuanced argument, right, instead calling people, quote, nasty disasters, Marxists, leftists, calling people names, and launching these personal attacks, while behind the scenes, uh, his lawyers have some other questions that I do think are going to become a theme in the court of the public opinion, but probably not on Truth Social.
9: All
0: right, Paula Reed and Tom Dupree, thanks to both of you, appreciated. Growing questions and fewer answers as more videos emerge showing live power lines being flung in the high winds hours before the deadly Hawaii fires erupted. Then. The first-of-its-kind implant that could change the lives of stroke survivors who have lost mobility, CNN's Dr. Sanjay Gupta, follows one patient who could barely walk before and is now doing yard work. International lead now some cell phone service is slowly returning to the island of Maui. Wildfires there have killed at least 96 people, and that number is sadly expected to rise as so many... People remain unaccounted for. Many who did survive had to outrun fast-moving wildfires. Now they have no homes. The raw emotion and anguish there is palpable. Let's go straight to CNN chief climate correspondent Bill Weir, who is on the island of Maui. Bill, has the full scope of this devastation sunk into to residents there?
10: Boy, it's it's happening minute by minute, day by day, Jake. You've got some people, families who are giving DNA samples to authorities, because their loved ones are missing, and and most of those 96 souls there were essentially cremated by these wildfires. So that's going to take time for forensic evidence. Those who still have their homes are still affected by this. Economically, it's a huge ripple effect. It's a psychological toll as people debate about whether tourists should be welcomed or or not during this very painful time. But a lot of people are putting this anxiety into action, and I've seen some of the most impressive do-it-yourself relief efforts anywhere in the world.
15: Me and right. Brittany will lead the front. We got right behind us. Something Just something stay something. close.
10: When Charlie and Brittany Fleck saw pictures of the devastation on Lahaina, the couple from Maui knew they had to do something. Come, come, we need give you cash. We
9: got cash.
16: Some money? Yeah. We need Thank you. Right I think, okay. there, I think there's, a, there's a big ice truck. We got coming. help
10: on the way. So they put out a plea on Facebook. And when thousands of dollars began rolling in, they began handing it out.
2: Hey, Thank you so much. We're we're coming for you. Thank
10: you. Aloha. But that didn't seem like enough. So they organized a caravan and sweet-talked their way past red tape and checkpoints. And when they finally saw what Lahaina looks like for the first time, they wept. But just on the edge of the burn scars, we find an inspiring example of Hawaiian togetherness. You want a towel for your neck? Cold towel? Are you kidding? <laughs> that is aloha hospitality. Yeah. Thank you. There you go, man. Right, you, right there, you, over your neck. Keep you okay, nice and cool. It. Archie Kalepa is a Hall of Fame surfer and lifeguard with Maui roots that go back nine generations. This is your actual house here, or? Yeah, this is my actual home, and we was really lucky because um, our neighbors, uh, they were here
15: fighting the fire right at this corner, and um, the fire
10: department said, this is our last stand. We're gonna hold the line right here. Well there's so much frustration over the official response so far, he says authorities deserve some understanding, given the size of the disaster this right here is a crime scene and so what people don't understand is the government has to do due diligence before they start moving in so it's a, a humanitarian response in the at, middle of an, a working crime scene exactly but at another relief pod on a beach nearby frustration has turned to anger you know everybody's like
0: oh you know they're gonna come and help they're gonna come and help anyway Nobody came for help us, you know what I mean? We rely on people like you guys that get compassion like we do, you know what I mean? That that willing for help us because please, we need help. We need help, we need need. the next step. This is is just the first inning. This is the first inning of what what we're facing.
15: Tourism is our number one um, source of income. I would hope that our representatives, our politicians, our government would ask the people from here, when can we open? They should not be telling us, oh, we want to open six months from now. The truth of the matter is, when you look at the overall devastation, we are not going to be ready to allow people to see
10: what we're living through in six months. Archie says he hopes that this outpouring from around the world for Maui is sustainable beyond these weeks into next year, the years it'll take to rebuild. And they're very hopeful they can rebuild in a sustainable way to avoid the, the addictions of fossil fuels that set up the conditions for this tragedy uh, and give some ownership to native Hawaiians, multi-generational Hawaiians who are being priced out of these beautiful paradise uh, settings right now. So the soul is, is being driven out there. They just want to stay in their home and rebuild in a way that connects this community and keeps this from happening ever again. Jake.
0: All right, Bill, we're in Maui. Thank you so much. Let's go now to CNN's Nick Watt. Nick, so many uh, questions remain about how this fire started and how it got as bad as it did. Today, new information about how power lines on the island might have played a role.
17: That's right, Jake. The local utility is now under increasing scrutiny. Did downed power lines spark the fires? Should they have done more over the years to prepare for something like this? And should they have preemptively shut down the grid in such high winds? You know, a class action lawsuit has already been filed against the power company, and it reads in part by failing to shut off power during these dangerous fire conditions. Defendants cause loss of life. Here's the pushback specific to a formal power shutter program. We, like most utilities, do not have one. A Hawaiian electric company spokesperson told CNN and he said that shutoffs would have had to have been coordinated with the first responders because on Maui, quote, electricity powers the pumps that provide the water needed for firefighting. He wouldn't comment further on the litigation, says their focus right now is helping the recovery. Jake and Nick, our
0: investigative team uncovered some social media videos that focus on those power lines. What
17: did they seem to show? Well, you know, these videos are ramping up the pressure on the utility. We see poles and pylons bending in high wind and downed power lines. Listen to Shane True as he films outside his
14: house. Hey, heads up. The line is live on the ground right there. Thank you. Hey, the power line is live. Eh?
17: See him right there. That's a power line that started.
14: Started from up the road there.
17: Now, the utility has been making some efforts at fire mitigation. Last year, they asked for nearly one hundred ninety million dollars for a, quote, climate adaptation program. But in the previous four years, they did not remove any hazardous trees outside of the right of way around their equipment. You know, utilities have been found at fault for fires in the past. Over here in California, PG&E was found guilty of 84 counts of involuntary manslaughter for the fire that pretty much destroyed the town of Paradise. Now, I must stress, there is no official cause yet for the fire that destroyed Lahaina. And clearly there were a few factors at play, those storm winds, as well as a lot of dry vegetation. The big remaining question, what provided the sparks? Jake.
0: All right, Nick Watt, thanks so much. Joining us on the phone now, is Keikoa Lansford, a resident of Lahaina on the island of Maui. Um, a few days ago in La- Lahaina, you said people were still finding bodies floating in the water. Is that still the case? Tell us what you're seeing now. Um,
4: that, that was the case, I believe so, in not. Um, the day after the fire I was trying to get fly people down to... Um, to pull the bodies to shore or to do something about
10: them, um, and I night
0: there was there was bodies in the water. All right. Hello? Yeah. Keikoa, Lansford, saying we're, we're having trouble. I know there's a real problem with uh, cell phone connectivity uh, on on Maui. We're go- we're going to check back with you when we get a better connection to you, so people can can hear what you're saying. KKO Lansford uh, on the island of Maui. Thank you so much. And you can help Hawaii fire victims. Head to cnn.com slash impact, cnn.com slash impact for a list of resources. You can also text the word Hawaii, H-A-W-A-I-I, to this number, 707070. Coming up, Heartburn is not the only fallout from the Iowa State Fair. There is the 2024 presidential politics, and that's next. In our 2024 lead, Donald Trump was out on the campaign trail this weekend. He attended the Iowa State Fair briefly, along with other Republican presidential candidates. While many of the candidates attended events and met with voters, Donald Trump seemed focused mainly on upstaging Ron DeSantis. My panel joins me now. So, Jonah, at the fair, uh, it appeared President Trump was, uh, at times, trolling DeSantis. He had this plane uh, flying overhead uh, with a banner that read, Be More Likeable, Ron. That's a <laughs> reference to a story about um, DeSantis preparing for a gubernatorial debate and Be More Likeable I think is written on there. Um, he, he traveled with a, an entourage also, Trump, uh, largely made up of Floridians, uh, Desantis's home state uh, in- including members of Congress who endorsed him, including Byron Donalds, Matt Gates, Anna Paulina Luna, uh, Mike Waltz. Do you think this bothers DeSantis at all?
18: Oh, probably. Um, And and look, I think the strategy kind of worked, right? Because like, I'm just going to put it bluntly, not very many attendees of the Iowa State Fair know any members of the Florida congressional delegation. They don't recognize them. They don't care about them. But you just mentioned it. It's mentioned in all the media stories about this, about how Trump trolls DeSantis. And that's, I think, what they were going for. And Paul,
0: another uh, theme of the weekend, candidates Uh, needling Trump to try to encourage him to join the debate stage, I think, next week. Uh, Take a listen.
4: People ask me sometimes what, what I think about maybe debating Donald Trump. I tell people I've debated Donald Trump a thousand times, just never with the cameras on.
7: Well, first of all, I think President Trump, it's his decision whether he wants to get on the debate stage or not. You have to earn the support of the American people.
1: It's hard to earn their support if you're absent.
18: You have to earn this nomination and you have
2: to show up. You have to debate. Do you? Do you have to earn the nomination? Do you have no. to debate? No. <laughs> and Trump would be foolish to do so. Now, he yeah. may do it because he's a pretty foolish guy. The question is, is his ego bigger than his political sense? And, the so ego. you think
0: it's smart to not... Okay. Yes, I do.
2: I think he's, he gains nothing. He's 40 points ahead. Now, he should campaign hard. By the way, I love the trolling. I do. I'm sorry. I, I'm, a, I'm a small, horrible person. I think it's great when you do stuff. Like it's
0: all it's all above board. I mean, right. it's all within right. for Trump. I mean, that's, you know, but that's also clean.
2: he knows DeSantis, who's very high intellect, but not very quick witted. Right. Arnold Schwarzenegger, somebody threw eggs at him when he ran for governor. You know, what he said you owe me a piece of bacon. OK, home run. What if DeSantis looked at him and said, oh, look, ladies and gentlemen, there's Con Air. Right or or maybe he's lost like he lost the White House and the House and the you something. Desantis could have done this, but they. You're should. like me though with the Conair reference. It's a you're dated. Too dated. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know I'm an old Nicholas That's like the guy. Yeah.
0: That's I, I take your point, uh, Laura. In order to join the debate stage, Trump would have to sign the RNC pledge, which says that you will support the Republican nominee no matter who it is. Uh, Trump has said he doesn't want to sign it, that there are three or four people that he wouldn't support.
12: Mm -hmm. And at the same time, Fox executives are begging him to join the debate stage, holding dinners with him, asking him to join. I think that ultimately, even if the former president signs it to get on the debate stage, that it doesn't mean there's enough evidence. We've seen this play out before. It doesn't mean he's going to actually hold true to it and support Uh, the eventual nominee if it isn't him so I think that right now I mean I'd be surprised if the former president actually joins the debate stage because he has said over and over again Paul's point which is that he doesn't think it would help him that he's so far ahead in the polls uh, and he can counter program and he's threatened to potentially counter program and when I've talked to some Republican strategists uh, across swing states they say look Uh, Trump could just drop in somewhere, command a crowd of thousands, and that's all he needs to do. He doesn't have to be there every day the way the other candidates have to.
0: Yeah. And and of course, people, these candidates are all looking for their breakout moment uh, where people like, oh, Nikki Haley. Oh, Ron DeSantis, whatever. Uh, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's polling pretty well in a few states, uh, started rapping at the Iowa State Fair. A little uh, tribute to, to Eminem. Take a listen getting
8: what he wrote down the whole crowd goes so loud he opens his mouth but the words won't come out he's joking how everybody's joking now the clocks run out time's up over plow snap back to reality oh there goes gravity oh there goes, gravity. Oh, there goes gravity.
0: so that happens. any thoughts i mean first of all he's trying to lean into young voters but mm-hmm. i will say that the people who like that song are oldies like you and me <laughs> right right general Xers yeah or, do you know that's Eminem you know Yes, m&m I know is? who Eminem is. He's you know, also a
12: big millennial. You saw, oh,
0: millennials, millennials like Eminem. Like M- okay, yeah. I, I stand corrected.
18: He also found, like, the one white rapper to use, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, um, look, I, I can't get too worked up about it one way or the other. I mean, I don't like performative politics, generally speaking, but it was kind of a passable performance. Sure, it was good rapping. Yeah. yeah um, at the same time, look, I, I think that Ramaswamy has been very effective at meeting a big chunk of the Republican electorate that is paying attention, that is tuned into all of this stuff by being a bomb thrower and an entertaining guy. And I think he's actually probably the second choice for a lot of Trumpers, as opposed to Ron DeSantis, which the whole plan was that he was going to be the alternative to Donald Trump. Ramaswamy has figured out how to fill that space. I think he's kind of a lightweight when it comes to the actual substance of things. But so is donald trump and it's been very successful for him
0: and so paul on the democratic side uh, Repo- uh robert kennedy jr uh made an eye-catching remark over the weekend he he well this is what he uh, told a reporter i think an nbc reporter uh about whether or not there should be a ban uh, on abortion
4: i believe that a decision for a child should be up to the women during the first three months of life.
12: So you would cap it at 15
5: weeks?
17: Yes. Or 21 yes. weeks? Yeah, three months.
5: So three months. You would sign a federal cap on that?
17: Yes, yes I would.
0: <laughs> then, just hours later, RFK Jr.'s campaign put out a statement that read in part, quote, Mr. Kennedy's position on abortion is that it is always the woman's right to choose. He does not support legislation, banning abortion, unquote, in the campaign, I believe, tried to blame this on there was bad sound or whatever. I I don't know. It seems pretty.
2: He said it three or four times in that interview. He's looked like he he was working it out. Right. He kept coming back to it. And it's not 15 weeks at 12. Right. Right. Do the math, Bobby. It's 12. It reminds me when his uncle Teddy was running against Mitt Romney for the Senate. Romney claimed he was pro-choice. Earlier he said he was pro-life. And Teddy said to him in the debate, Mitt, you're not pro-choice. You're multiple choice. Bobby's now multiple choice.
0: Yeah um what what do you think of that? Do you think that this is going to hurt uh, Robert Kennedy, or do you think the people the whatever it is ten to fourteen ten to nineteen percent of the Democrats in 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 certain polls say they they support him? Do you think they don't care? They're just anti Biden?
12: I think that uh, yeah, he's definitely benefiting from this anti Biden wing, but there I don't see how you actually make a viable case in the Democratic primary, one that where you can potentially win, which he i don't don't think he can at all, and that's safe to say. but And say that you support a national ban on abortion at 12 weeks, you know, at three months. This is such a salient issue for Democratic voters and even independent voters. And those voters that Republicans or an independent candidate is going to try to have to win over if they want to make a viable case because... All the voters that I've checked in with in these swing states that are maybe on the fence, they say that abortion is one of their biggest issues.
0: Yeah, especially since uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned, which is one of the reasons it was so staggering that he didn't seem to have a position articulated at the time, because uh, this
18: is kind of important to Democratic voters. Yeah, I kind of welcome it. It's it's because uh, it's been much commented upon on my side of the aisle about how Republicans are not, don't have the vocabulary to talk about abortion because they could hide behind Roe v. Wade all this time. It's nice to see Democrats actually not have the vocabulary either. I, although I'm not sure how many people would consider him a Democrat at this point.
0: Just saying. Anyway, thanks so much. An emotional court appearance today. Six Mississippi law enforcement officers who called themselves the Goon Squad accused of torturing two black men. The reaction from those men ahead. A horrific story out of Mississippi in our Law and Justice League today. Six now former law enforcement officers pleaded guilty today to state charges for abusing and torturing two black men. The former officers, who once referred to themselves as the Goon Squad, pleaded gu- guilty earlier this month to federal charges for the same January incident. The brutalized victims say the officers handcuffed, kicked, waterboarded, and attempted, attempted to sexually assault them for nearly two hours. CNN's Ryan Young shows us how this story went from cover-up to courtroom.
4: One by
6: one, six disgraced former law enforcement officers were led into a Mississippi courtroom Monday to plead guilty to state charges related to assaulting Eddie Parker and Michael Jenkins for nearly two hours. The torture included physical, racist, and attempted sexual abuse and a cover-up. I enjoyed the, uh, the view of seeing uh, the shame, the walk of shame, the, uh, the head down. I hope um, this is a lesson to uh, everybody out there. Justice will be soon. Right, I need to plead
4: count one aggravated assault. You're not, guilty. You're
6: not guilty? The men admitted to calling themselves the Goon Squad, giving themselves that moniker because of their alleged willingness to use excessive force and not to report their actions. On January 24th, the six officers entered the victim's home without a warrant and, according to the charges, handcuffed, repeatedly tased, and attempted to sexually assault the two men. After a white neighbor complained about suspicious activity at the home, it ended with Jenkins getting shot in the mouth. They left him lying in a pool of blood, gathered on the porch of
3: the house to discuss how to cover it up.
6: In July, I spoke to Parker Jenkins and Jenkins' mother... And CNN tour the home where the crimes occurred. It's hard to stand right here, knowing you know what happened right here. Jenkins' injuries make it difficult for him to speak. I hurt. I'm embarrassed. Has anyone from the department ever reached out to you and apologized? Have they ever asked for anything at, at all? No. Rankin County Sheriff Brian Bailey, who's also named in a federal lawsuit by the victims, but does not face any charges spoke about the incident in late June. I believe in my heart that this department remains one of the best. He later apologized, saying he didn't initially fully understand the gravity of the crimes. Today, he issued a statement saying, in part, we hope that today's guilty pleas bring some sense of justice to the two victims in this case. Jake, when you think about the pain that this family had to go through, Mary Jenkins said she didn't believe her son was going to survive this. Now the big question moving forward, how many other victims have been involved with this goon squad? That's a question that we'll continue to ask as well. Once again, it's important to note that these men also pled guilty to those federal charges. Jake.
0: Yeah. Ryan Young, thank you so much for that important report. Coming up, children as young as five years old taking on the state of Montana in court and winning. But what will this ruling actually mean when it comes to protecting the climate? In our Earth Matters series now, as we continue to see more devastating and deadly extreme weather events, such as the fires in Maui, a major legal victory. A judge has ruled Montana's continued use and mining of fossil fuels violates the state's constitution's guarantee of a clean and healthful environment for current and future generations. Sixteen young people from Montana sued the state in an unprecedented case, and I'm joined now by the lead Plaintiff Ricky Held. Julia Olson is also with me. She's the chief legal counsel for Our Children's Trust, the organization representing young people in pending climate cases in four other states. Uh, Ricky, congratulations. Uh, I have a 13-year-old and 15-year-old, and I often think about how how are they and that generation, including you, going to judge my generation um, when it comes to climate change, and especially the baby boomers who you know, between you and me, I think, are mainly responsible. But today's ruling may set legal precedent for similar cases in other states. It won't, however, stop the mining or the burning of fossil fuels in Montana. So what is your reaction to the ruling?
16: Um, Well, first of all, I'm just really excited about the ruling. Um, It's been a long time coming. We've waited three years um, just being part of this case. And we've known about human caused climate change at least half a century. So just Getting a ruling that uh, listens to our stories and our voices and to the best available science is just really important. Um, And, yeah, all we can do is the actions um, that are in our control moving forward. And whether that's um, as individuals or states, uh, we can take responsibility. And all the generations are involved in that.
0: And, Ricky, the Office of Montana's Attorney General said in a statement, quote, this ruling is absurd, but not surprising from a judge who let the plaintiff's attorneys put on a week-long taxpayer-funded publicity stunt that was supposed to be a trial, unquote. Uh, Montana is expected, of course, to appeal the ruling. Um, you uh, just graduated from college. Will you continue this fight if the state appeals?
16: Um, yeah, if uh, Julia can talk about this more, but if, uh, if it gets appealed, then we'll go to the Montana Supreme Court and I'll continue. Um, yeah.
0: Julia, on a practical level, what does this ruling accomplish beyond, obviously, the symbolic victory?
16: Yeah, I mean, this ruling is, is monumental. It's one of the most important rulings on climate change in the history of the world. And what happened in Montana was experts, climate scientists, energy specialists, medical professionals, and um, the youth, like Ricky, took the stand and they told the truth about what's happening to the planet and to Montana and to the health of these young people. And what the ruling will do is it will stop fossil fuel pollution, not overnight in Montana, but it does really uh, hamper the state's ability to continue to approve new fossil fuel projects. Um, The judge says it's unconstitutional to continue to do so. And the state's gonna have to look hard at continuing to allow fossil fuel development and emissions in Montana going forward.
0: But if the state does appeal the ruling and it goes to the Montana Supreme Court, is that friendly terrain for your case, do you think, Julia?
16: I think the Montana Supreme Court is a very fair and thoughtful court that is willing to uphold the Montana Constitution and protects, protect the rights of the people of Montana, including its youth. So we think we have a really fair shot, as any case does, headed up there. And in the meanwhile, Judge Seely's opinion is the law of the land in the state of Montana and the states required to comply with it.
0: And do you plan on doing this in other states?
16: We do. We have a, Ho- a Hawaii trial set for June 2024. We're going to the Utah Supreme Court this fall. And we're also in the Virginia Court of Appeals, in addition to our big federal case, the Juliana versus United States litigation where we're also aiming to get to trial early next year.
0: All right, Julia Olson and Ricky Held, congratulations to both of you, and thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Turning to our health leads, stroke is the fifth most common cause of death in the United States, and for those who do survive strokes, often leave them disabled. Now, for the first time, a deep brain stimulator is helping disabled stroke patients move. CNN chief medical correspondent Dr. Sanjay Gupta followed one patient in a trial, who went from only being able to take a few steps to being able to do yard work and cook?
4: People say I'm crazy.
15: Stan Nicholas was a born performer.
2: Doing what I'm doing. The
9: Burnt River Band,
15: a founder of the Cleveland-based Burnt River Band, he spent decades on stage, but it all came to a halt one evening in 2017. He was 66 years old.
4: I lost my balance and I fell to the floor. Every time I got halfway up, my knees would buckle and I'd fall down again.
15: 14 hours later, a friend walked into his home and found him on the floor.
4: I was taken to a university hospital in downtown Cleveland where I woke up with a doctor standing over me. I asked the doctor if I had died. The doctor said you had a bad stroke.
15: This is what Stan's brain looked like a few days later. All that dark part on the left... That's the part of Stan's brain that died because it hadn't received enough blood.
4: So I couldn't walk when I woke up. I couldn't move my left arm or my left hand. I thought that I was going to be disabled for life. I've had a lot of therapy.
15: Within a few months, all that Stan was able to do was take a few steps. And then he simply plateaued. When you first saw him What was the expectation for his recovery?
5: The expectation was poor. Uh, He was more than a
0: year out from his stroke. He had already undergone physical therapy, occupational therapy. And despite the early improvements, he was stable. He wasn't improving anymore.
15: That's why Dr. Andre Machado, a neurosurgeon at the Cleveland Clinic, offered something to Stan that was a first in humans a deep brain stimulator. That's what you see there. Now, you may have heard of these for Parkinson's disease, but this was being placed specifically to help Stan recover from his stroke. Stan had weakness but was able to walk with his left leg, but it was really his his arm, he was unable to close and open his hand, and lifting his arm, he was having difficulties. He
5: uh, had enormous difficulties using his hand for any
0: useful activity of daily living on the, on the left side.
15: So in September of 2020, three years after his stroke, Stan underwent an eight-hour-long operation where this 1.3-millimeter probe, which is as wide as a grain of sand, was placed into the cerebellum of his brain. He had physical therapy, stimulator placed. How soon after did you start to see any changes?
4: Within the first month, I can lift my left arm, which I couldn't do. Look at this. This can transition from being hope, which it is today,
0: to perhaps a treatment that will be a standard treatment in the future.
15: For Stan, it now means being able to live independently. Help
4: me out with my cooking, preparing my meals and, and eating and things around the house, yard work and household chores.
15: And hopefully one day, he'll be able to play again. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN reporting.
0: And our thanks to Sanjay Gupta for that report. CNN is live at the Fulton County Courthouse this evening where the grand jury appears to be working ahead of schedule and they are still working even though it is long after 5 p.m. What we're learning about today's testimony as that investigation into 2020 election crimes could soon lead to an indictment, stay with us.